Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So, what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right, you'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Hey, I'm Paul Stevenson, and this is episode 100 of the Ultimate Classic Rock Podcast that says that my music is better than yours. Make sure to subscribe on your podcast app right now so you don't miss a single episode. They're released each and every Monday with a big-name guest on each show. So yeah, how about that? Episode 100. Pretty crazy, really. Before we get on to today's guest, who is another fantastic rock star, telling stories of David Bowie and George Harrison, Dolly Parton, and and much more, I just want to say thank you to you for listening. I've said it in the past, being a podcaster is a a bit of a weird existence. I, I sit and record in here in my own little studio and put it out for people to listen to. I can see the download numbers, so I know people are listening, but it's only when I get emails or comments on social media or there's a new cool thing that you can leave comments on Spotify on each episode as well. I see those ones coming through now, which is nice. There's uh, reviews on Apple Podcasts too. I read them all. I try and read everything that comes my way, honestly. But it's not until I see those that I realise that it really isn't just for me. It's it's not just for me sat in my little studio and that there are people out there that have followed me for the last three years releasing these interviews with these classic rock stars. So a big thank you to a couple of people that have been around for a long time. Andy Old, Joey Michaud, Paul Graham, Athel Manson, Michelle Verhoos, Eric Campbell, Kenneth Hoggins, Joe Kay from Play That Rock and Roll, The Wolf, Action Jackson, Judy Hoffman, Dennis Stallard and Mike Norris. There's probably loads of others and sorry if I didn't give you a mention but that's who comes to mind off the top of my head. A huge thanks to everybody for making this what it is today and a thank you to all the guys at Pantheon Podcast Network as well, Christine and Peter too. They welcome me into their roster of shows. Please do check out Pantheon. There's some brilliant podcasts on there for you to listen to. So thanks to everyone at Pantheon. Um, Instead of a telegram from the King for reaching 100, what would be great, though, is if you could take two minutes to go onto the podcast app that you're using, leave a lovely five-star review. It really does make a big difference for the kind of show discovery on these apps. The more positive reviews, the more the show gets put in front of other people that come on looking for different things. So please spare just a couple of minutes to leave five stars and possibly maybe a few kind words as well. That'd be amazing. Thank you. 
Anyway, let's crack on then with episode 100. On today's show, I've got another fantastic chat with a rock star whose career has spanned over 50 years. As a teenager, he teamed up with the Small Faces and then Humble Pie, became friends with George Harrison and played on his incredible record, All Things Must Pass. He then released one of the biggest selling live records of all time, 20 million plus sales, eight times platinum alone in the US, the biggest selling record in America in 1976. He's won Grammys and worked with so many legends and he continues to do so to this day. I am, of course, talking about the brilliant, the charismatic Peter Frampton. Now, we talk about his recent work on Dolly Parton's new Rockstar album, his beginnings with the Small Faces and friendship with Steve Marriott, his early solo work and many studio sessions with the legendary former Beatle George Harrison, including the story of playing his famous guitar Lucy, the one that Eric Clapton gave him. Of course, we talk about Frampton Comes Alive and the talk box, which became his signature sound, and then there's the brilliant story of his friendship since childhood with the one and only David Bowie and how Bowie helped save his career and I ask him some of your questions that he sent in as well it's another fascinating interview now I'll be honest I was told by his manager that I could have 20 minutes with him but I managed to eke out just over half an hour by kind of pushing my luck but anyway Peter is funny and charming and charismatic and warm and open all the way through He has his health issues, but he's not going to be beaten. He's still out trying to tour, although these days he plays sitting down. And we wish him all the very best with his health, of course. Anyway, I really hope you enjoy this one, a special one for episode 100. Here's my chat with the legendary Peter Frampton. Dolly Parton's new album, Rockstar. I mean, you're involved. She's she's included one of your songs on there as well. So so tell us about that. How did all that come about? Well, I... I heard that um, Dolly was starting to do or in the middle of doing her rock star album because she she had turned down uh, the nomination to start with because she just said, I ain't I'm a country singer. I'm not a rock and roller. (laughs) So uh, she said, I'm very honored. And then no one would let her off the hook. So the public even went along with it because everyone loves her so much. They said, "Ah, go for it. Dolly. So she then made another statement saying, okay, um, uh, I'm going to, against my better judgment, I'm going to accept this nomination, but I promise that I'm going to do, my next record will be a rock record. So I I heard about her in this, because I'm in Nashville where she is. And um, so I got my manager to call up the producer and, and said, Peter would love to, if it's possible, if you got an open track for a solo on there, on the album somewhere. And then so uh, Kent Wells, the producer, called me up and said, Peter. I said, yes. Hi, Kent. He said, is that all you want to do, just a solo? I said, absolutely. I said, I'm sure all the, all the um, duet um, slots are filled. <laughs> he said, well, hang on a minute. So he said, would you would you ever be okay with doing one of Dolly doing one of your numbers with you? I said, let me think about that. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so he said, give me a minute. So he literally gave me a couple of minutes, called me back and said, Dolly's screaming. He wants she wants to do. She's so thrilled. She wants to do Baby, I Love You Way with you. So I said, oh, my God, I got chills thinking about it. Um but um, so, but the thing, the funny thing was, I said when we were on this first phone call, Kent and I, I said, um, "That's amazing, man! I I can't thank you enough." But I did 
lowball you with the solo thing. Is there another song that I could play a solo on? Because that's all I called up for, you know. And he said, well, let me think. She's got one she wrote. Would you be okay with playing the solo on Let It Be? I said, I think so. <laughs> is it who I think it is singing it with her? And he said, yeah. And it's Ringo on drums and Mick Fleetwood on playing tambourine. Oh, wow. I said, oh, my God. I, I'm i not going to do a Beatles solo, though. It'll have to be something different. Is that okay? And he said, that's what I want. I want it to be updated. So I got to be on. T- I'm the only guy that's on two tracks. Wow. Incredible. And is I've spoke to lots of people in the last few years, everyone's working remotely, but did you actually get to go in the studio with Dolly or is it was all remote again? <laughs> no, I was in the studio, but she wasn't in there. No, basically uh-huh. I, I sang it at home. I have a setup at home and um, I sung the whole thing and I shipped it off to Kent and I said, tell Dolly, you know, take me out wherever you want to take me out and put you in, you know? So she did. And, um, then they sent it to me and I was just floored by how how much energy she brought to the in fact I had to do a redo some of mine to be a little <laughs> bit more energetic and uh, and to to equal her but um oh my god it was such a thrill to my my family and and I were my kids and everything they'd heard it and they were just like so thrilled because she's she's so loved worldwide and um does so much for so many people yeah. um, that, you know, when when Jeff Bezos gave her like, what was it, 200 million to invest because she knows how to do it. I guess she knows how to invest. So she's uh, she follows all the the needs of people worldwide, you know, so I applaud her as we all do. Uh, now, Peter, if you don't mind going back a few years to to when you were at school. Now, I believe you were in school with David Bowie, weren't you? And the two of you used to get your acoustic guitars out. And you're only, what, 12, 13 or so yes. at the time? Is that right? Yes, about 13, I think. Um, well, my dad was his art teacher, uh, head of the art department. And uh, it was Dave and, see, I'm, I'm David. Uh, I only <laughs> ever call him Dave. So um, <laughs> it's weird. Um, it was Dave and George Underwood who did the cover for Ziggy Stardust and is a fine, fine artist, also taught by my father. So it was the three musketeers oh, wow. at school. It was the three of us. And that's when my dad said one day, well, I know you you boys are very much into this pop music. Maybe you <laughs> want to bring your guitars to school and I'll stick them in my office and you can jam it. I don't think he used that word, though. You can play uh, uh, guitars and sing whatever you do at lunchtime. So we did. So, uh, yeah, it goes back to I wasn't even I was I was probably 12 or 13 by then. Yeah. Wow, incredible. And that leads on to my first question from, from the listeners, Joe Kay. He said that uh, he, he loved the tour, the 1987 Glass Spider tour that you did with David. He says your lead guitar work on that was great. Do you have any standout memories from that tour? Um, some that I won't tell you about, but <laughs> <laughs> um, but no, I it was what a what a thrill it was when, first of all, when David called and asked me to go to uh, Switzerland, where he was living at the time, to um, be on the record. And then he took me out uh, to dinner. We went out to dinner a couple of times while we were sessioning. And um, he said, look, I'm doing this uh, this big tour. Would you? How would you feel about being the guitarist, one of my guitarists? And I said, 
And I did this again. Let me think about that. Yes. <laughs> you know, I mean, I've waited since I was 13 to play on the same stage at the same time as Dave, you know. So um, it was such a thrill. And, of course, my career was, shall we say, not doing well at the time or before he um, talked to me. I was just just starting to uh, record and tour again after a hiatus after the the massive period and um so yeah he he uh but what what I didn't realize I was just super excited to be playing with yeah. David on the same stage you know in his band and then I didn't realize what he was actually doing I mean he could have had any guitar player in the world as we know they would all be like clamoring to be there and that was the last thing I ever thought that he would ask me. And um, but what it was, it was gave my career a kick up the pants, you know. Um, and uh, or as we would say, kick up the backside. Um, <laughs> and um, I couldn't believe the difference. You know, afterwards, it was like I, he put me back on the map. And it was the I always say it was the biggest gift he ever gave me or anyone has given me, to be honest. And um, it's been, it really, it was a steady, you know, I worked very hard uh, from that point. I always have, but it started me off on this trajectory now. And even though I'm at a point where I'm maybe not going to always be able to play um, for much longer, but but uh, where I am right now in my career, I I I go, I give it, I give uh, David a wonderful round of applause for for helping me so much. Fantastic stuff, and obviously certain songs you have to do certain things. But did he give you the room to to express yourself while you're on tour with him? He never said a word about my playing, about what he he never directed me. I knew. The most difficult ones were the ones where it was the guitar was so recognizable, like Let's Dance. Uh, we got there, there I am, Frampton doing Stevie, you know, and um, I can't. The, you know, he's uh, out, was uh, uh, one of the best blues players ever, and I'm not a strictly blues player. I mix all the styles together, and, and I've got my own style. So, um, but I think um, the moment every night that I loved the most was when he gave me this extended guitar solo, the end of Loving the Alien, and uh, that's on the DVD, um, and I think there's an album of the tour, whatever. And yeah. um, that was phenomenal, to be able to stretch out and play me for David, you know, and everybody. So... Um, but we had a lot of fun. Um, it was um, it was the biggest show. I I mean, I'd done stadiums myself, but the production was the biggest production I'd ever been involved in. I mean, there were over 250 in the crew, just the crew. Wow. Uh, especially in Europe. And then I think in Europe where the, the bus, uh, the trucks are a little smaller, we had... 40 trucks and it's just i was still the tour was about i don't know three four months maybe a little longer six months and 
even on the last day, I was meeting people for the first time, you know, that were in the crew. <laughs> so, um, yeah, it was a biggie. And um, it was it was a, a great, great experience that I would never have got any other way. Yeah. Absolutely fantastic. And you mentioned there that you, you're not strictly a blues player, but that kind of throws up a humble pie. And you were only young, I think, was it 18 or something when you joined forces with Steve Marriott yes. for Humble Pie? Again, that is incredibly young. I mean, what was it like working with Steve? Because obviously he'd come off the back of a big band in the Small Faces as well. Yes. Well, we the the way we got together was the Small Faces heard that, heard that the herd that I was in uh, at the time um, were having were being ripped off basically <laughs> and we didn't know what was going on or whatever so um Ronnie Lane actually called us up and said uh Andrew Bown uh, obviously of status quo now yeah. and um and my dear buddy that we used to write together um in the herd period and um and Andrew and I drove down to to um Marlow where they were both staying uh, they shared a, a, a house down there with their wives or girlfriends, and um, they gave us advice um, on because they'd been the small faces had been ripped off about a dozen times, you know. So uh, as as the book says, um, and which was great, and then they ended up helping us produce some tracks um, on the herd's second album, which never came out. Don't know where the tapes are. Would love to find them uh, and mix them. Um, but uh, and then Andrew went back that night, but I stayed down, I think, and virtually never left and started jamming with Ronnie and Steve. And then the next thing that happened was uh, Johnny Halliday, the French Elvis, who we've recently lost to. A wonderful man, really a superman. And uh, he asked the small faces to write some songs for him and also play on his next record. Well, uh, Steve asked Glenn Johns to ask me if I would come and be the extra guitar player. So for a week in Paris, I joined the small faces, which was my oh, dream wow. come true. That's what I wanted to do. Yeah. That's what Steve wanted me to do. But the band weren't up for it, which I can understand that. Um, and even though I was great friends with all of them and and uh, until we lost Mac and Ronnie, obviously, and I'm still great friends with Kenny. But um, so after we came back from the uh, the Paris sessions for Johnny Halliday, I was at Glenn's, Glenn John's uh, house in in, in uh, London and um, just outside London and um, he's this this is a wild story. He said, "Do you want to hear this uh, this album? I just I just recorded with this new band. We recorded and mixed it in like twelve days." I said, "Oh yeah, who is it?" He said, "Well, you won't know the name." He said, "But you know of Jimmy Page?" I said, "Yeah, yeah." I said, "Well, this is." a band he's put together called Led Zeppelin. So he puts on the acetate of uh, which to, is the one you take away when you're mastering uh, a vinyl, you know, acetate. He put it on. I sat on the floor and my jaw was on the floor, literally listening to every track. And um, between side one and side two, uh, the phone rings. 
And Glenn goes and answers it, and it's Steve. He said, yeah, Steve's on the phone for you. I said, how do you know I'm here? Anyway, so, and Steve goes, look, I've just left the Small Faces. I'm at Alexandra Palace. I just played my last gig of the Small Faces. Will you, can I join your band? I mean, because he was helping me put a band together. And um, so I said, oh, my God, are you sure you want to do that? I thought I I would always want to join you guys, you know. And he said, well, ain't going to happen or whatever. And he said, I've got Greg Ridley um, from Spooky Tooth, bass player, and Jerry Shirley, who he'd all already found for me in my band. He said, what do you say? I said, let's do it. I'm in for it, up for it. So that's how we that's how we formed. Incredible stories. I love hearing things like that. It's incredible the way the bands and people kind of weave in and out. It's 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 just wonderful listening back to those sort of things. And I know I'm taking up a bit of your time, but um, you left Humble Pie. And the next question comes here from Alan Wallace. He says, um, you started your solo career. How did you manage to get Ringo Starr to play on that first album? <laughs> well, I had um, I'd been with a... a um, a friend of mine and George Harrison's, and uh, <clears throat> he was actually his personal assistant, Terry Doran, um, and uh, who had been John's assistant first, then he, and then George um, uh, employed him. And Terry was everyone's friend. He was a wonderful man. We've lost him too. And uh, he... We would meet up every, you know, every now and again. I I go up to town and and uh, Soho and meet him at the the pub, the ship down down the street from from the Marquee Club. It was like a hang, you know. And he, so we're having a beer or whatever, and and he goes, uh, so do you want to do you want to come to the session where George is recording? I said, George, who, you know? <laughs> uh, he said Harrison. I said, oh my god. Really? It's my first Beatle meeting coming up, you know. So um, so I said, oh, really? So anyway, it was at Trident, which is on Mordor Street, just down the road from down the alley, just down the road from the Marquee and the Flamingo and all those. So we walked down there. I'd been in there before. The control room is on the street level and the studio is on the bottom, is down below. And so I walked into the control room with Terry and. George was behind the console and he just looked up and he goes, hello, Pete. <laughs> and I, uh, I said, wait a second. Uh, oh, he's talking to me. <laughs> um, and, you know, if the floor could have opened up at that point, I'd have ended up in the studio down below, you know. And um, so he comes over to me and he's so nice to meet you. And, you know, you want to play guitar? I said, Whoa. now? He said, yes. I said, what is it? And he said, well, I'm doing uh, my first production for the Apple label is Doris Troy's album. We've just written a number. Uh, he said, yeah, Steve Stills is down there as well. <laughs> and and uh, it, we, the three of us, Doris Troy, George, and Stephen Stills wrote Ain't That Cute, which was the lead single from her Doris Troy album, which was the first album on the other than the Beatles on the Apple label. So I go downstairs and there's Stephen Stills right there as well, as well as Klaus Vorman. This one, I'm not sure if Ringo was on the first session or what, what, but anyway, so he hands George hands me what is now a very famous guitar called Lucy. Yep. 
which is the one that Eric gave to George and played on While My Guitar Gently Weeps. None of this I knew at the time, thank goodness. And so he hands me the guy. He's got a little Fender amp unplugged in, and he shows me the chords. And so we start recording or routining it. And so I'm just playing very quiet rhythm because this is the Beatles lead guitar player here, and there's Stephen Stills. <laughs> so I think I had to just sort of be in the background here. And then halfway through, George stops and he goes, Pete, no, man, I want you to play the lead licks, you know. And so I said, oh, my God, this is too good to be true. So anyway, if you listen to uh, Ain't That Cute, which is the lead track of of the album, Doris Troy's album, um, I'm playing the the intro and, and the lick keeps coming back every time. And then George did a little slide solo on it afterwards. But there it is. And that was the beginning. And so then uh, he said, would you come back and play on the rest of Doris's album? I said, mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> so I ended up playing about five or six tracks. And of course, then I met Ringo and, um, and uh, so many phenomenal players there. And then, so that was finished. Then two weeks later, George calls me up. He would all, always call me directly. And he said, Pete, um, can you come and play on my album now? And I said, oh, yes, please. And he said, um, yeah, I just, it's just acoustic. Um, it's me, you, and three of Badfinger, and we're going to just, it's um, Phil Spector. Phil Spector. <laughs> and so uh, I walk in with my acoustic, and it's Ringo on drums, um, and Jim Gordon from the dominoes on it's the dominoes basically and and a couple of beatles <laughs> and <laughs> you know <laughs> and klaus and everybody you know and, and gary wright on keyboards and and um so i ended up playing on about four or five tracks that week um and then again another couple of weeks goes by and Again, another call from George, and he says, look, Phil wants more acoustics. I said, there was five of us. How could he want more? He said, well, you know, it's Phil, you know, so <laughs> more is better. More is good, right? And um, the Kitchen Sink Productions, <laughs> you know, of yeah. Phil Spector. And um, so anyway, there's me and George now, just the two of us in Abbey Road, where the Beatles have done all their recording. And I, I, I was all going through my head and we, we double tracked or added acoustics to the four or five that I played on. And then they started putting, well, this is going good. Pete. Let's put some more up Phil, because this is sounding good, man. You know, so, so, so then I, and now I, my mind went completely. I said, "Well, I don't know these, but show me the chords, and I'll <laughs> sing me, sing me the chorus. <laughs> I'll give it a go, you know." And so I'm a pretty quick picker upper, and uh, so I think I, if you hear acoustic on "All Things Must Pass," I'm on there somewhere. Oh, so, wow. but I'm sorry I don't remember all the numbers I played on because at that point 
I was in seventh heaven. Yeah, you know? I can imagine. <laughs> and I don't remember. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny that you mentioned while well, my guitar gently weeps because I have a question here from Graham Nash, and I'm assuming it's not that Graham Nash, but uh, he says, uh, what was it about while my guitar gently weeps that caused you to adapt it to so many of your live shows? Ah, well, we had, um, <clears throat> I was living in Cincinnati, Ohio at the time, and I had planned to do in January of whatever year it was. Um, <laughs> sorry, but, you know, I'm old. <laughs> um, and um, I was, it was a charity show uh, uh, um, uh, benefit and um, for, for Cincinnati. And um, so I had asked every good local band to come and I would be the headliner and there would be like six local bands and it, it was packed. Um, everybody loved it. And uh, it's nice doing benefits because, you know, people know you're not getting the money. <laughs> it's going to something good. And um, so the night before I just called the band and I said, we had lost in November, we had lost George and um, the year before. And so I just called up everybody in the band. And I said, look, can you everybody go listen to while my guitar gently weeps because I would like to do it as a tribute. Well, we did that like we do just about every night now um, for years, we do it as the last song every night. And that first time we did it, we couldn't stop the audience from going crazy because I had dedicated it to George, obviously for obvious reasons. And, uh, we realized the power of the song and our version and um, um, <clears throat> then recorded it on a studio album. And uh, so it, it's out there and we've done it on, <clears throat> it's on the Royal Albert Hall. Ooh, I'm not sure if it is. Sorry. I take that back because yes, I, I don't know. There's so many different things coming out right now. I'm not <laughs> sure what, what's what, but anyway, it's uh, that's how it how it started. Hey, folks, Stefan Shirazi and Renee Richardson here from the Metallica Report. And we are proud members of the Pantheon podcast family, where the best of music and podcasts unite. We've got something pretty cool for you. We're giving away an exclusive Metallica merch package worth over two hundred and fifty dollars. That's a whole lot of scary guys, skulls, M72 and other sought after Metallica swag. And we've made it easy for you to win. Follow and share the Metallica Report and you're in the game. Go to pantheonpodcast.com slash Metallica, enter your email, and hit that button to be entered to win. And just like that, you're eligible for our monthly exclusive Metallica merch package. And guess what, rockers? You can enter every month. So just do it. And while we love our global brothers and sisters, the lawyers won't let us ship outside the U.S. Fantastic. And we, we, we mentioned playing live and we can't not speak to you about the, the incredible Peter Frampton Comes Alive. I mean, I often ask people about their big albums and, and wonder that if they had the thought whilst making them, whether they knew it was going to be big, whether they thought these songs are going to catch on. But obviously it's slightly different with a live album because the songs are already out there. So could you have ever imagined that that live record would have taken off the way it did and, and went absolutely mental? It went crazy, didn't it? <laughs> yeah. Um... No, uh, we, the, the only thing I'll say is that <clears throat> the main night where 90%, 95% of the album comes from is Winterland in San Francisco. 
Um, the acoustic numbers come from Marin County around the corner a couple of days earlier than that. But the main show we had never headlined in San Francisco for real. And they had adopted me after the Frampton album came out. Um, And San Francisco was way ahead of in appreciation of, of me uh, than anywhere else in the country, basically. And um, so we decided to do it there, do the live album there. And we had no idea. We didn't even have enough time for a headline show. So that's why we added the acoustic spot, you know. And and so when we walked out that night uh, and started playing, we were all in shock, I think, from the uh, reaction. You hear it on the record. It's There it is, you know. Yeah. And um, when we came off, it was one of those nights where, you know, it, during a tour, every every night the band comes off and someone will go, oh, I had a great night. Someone said, I had a bad night. Someone said, I had a mediocre night. But there's those very special nights where you you come off and everyone goes, oh, my God, I had the best night. And it was, well, you can see, it was a really good evening. And um, so I just remember going to the truck outside and standing against the wall as he just played us a couple of tracks. And we were just like, oh, my God, the energy level was so high and the audience and everything. And we just said, we've got something really special. That's all we said. We had no idea, knowing full well that live albums don't usually aren't usually big sellers. Well, were we wrong? (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely, absolutely. Um, I've got one here from Mark Christopher who says, thank you so much for the years of pure enjoyment you've provided us. Frampton Comes Alive really left my turntable. Uh, I'd like to know how you created such an astonishingly deep track as Lines on My Face. It's my all-time favourite. Well, it's actually... Uh, I I agree with you. I, it's very hard for me to play my own trumpet, <laughs> but uh, that that is one of my favorites too. And I I love playing it live more than anything else. I think it's just always been there in the act, you know. Um, and the way it came about was a breakup with my my wife. Basically, it's 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 the Phil Collins story. No, <laughs> um, yeah, out of out of. Uh, pure emotion um, like that, you know, uh, whether it be happy or sad, it can be very inspiring. Um, And I think I let my emotions um, come out on the page for that one. And um, I I wrote the music and and the lyrics in New York City. And um, because I was getting away from where I lived (laughs) in England at that time, just because things were, it was a sad situation, you know? So, and that's how the song came about. Fantastic. And I've got one from Alan Froome who says the talk box is such a strong association with yourself. How did you discover it? And what did you, what drew you to its unusual sound? Well, the very first person, Alvino Ray, um, in the twenties or thirties around there, I think, um, he invented this thing. He was a pedal steel player, 
And he had his wife behind the curtain with the tube. Oh. And so his he'd arranged, he'd made something, you know, to be like a talk box. And uh, <clears throat> and then he had a little puppet called Stringy. It's so weird, this, that would open its mouth and sing the, the song, you know, with the words. I don't know how they hooked that up. But anyway, so he would play the pedal steel. It would go through the talk box and his wife behind the curtain. I'm behind the curtain. <laughs> um, would mouth the words and Stringy would it would look like Stringy was singing it. And there's there's film of that. There is video of that. And uh, so anyway, I had heard that on a, a station called Radio Luxembourg, which I don't even know if it still exists. So who knows? Um, but it, when I was very young, it was the only place that you could hear great rock and roll and American music, R&B and blues and jazz, whatever. Uh, Kid Jensen from seven till midnight, <laughs> every night, you know, and uh, I'd be in bed with my transistor radio. You go to bed. No, I can't. It's it's uh, Radio Luxembourg. And so, but their call sign was 208. That was their number on the dial. And, uh, <clears throat> but they said, and that was the Alvino Ray. That's he he created that. And a lot of American stations copied him and used that effect for their their, their call signs. And then all, all those stations in um in England started doing that. And well, definitely Radio Luxembourg. So I went, there's that sound. <laughs> How do I get that? How do I get well fast forward? To then I hear Stevie Wonder on Music of My Mind, and he's using it with the synthesizer. And then Jeff Beck did it with uh, a Beatles number, She's a Woman. Um, and Joe Walsh did it with um, Rocky Mountain High, Way, Rocky Mountain Way, not High, that's John Denver. Um, and um, so I'm going, How do I get the everybody's getting this, but I'm not so anyway. I, we have to go back to All Things Must Pass, which is where um, Pete Drake, uh, Nashville Skyline for Bob Dylan, he was a member of what we call here in Nashville, the A-Team, who's like the Motown musicians uh, and, and you know, where they play on every record, where the A-Team played on every record, and they still do, but the m members change, obviously, over time. So in comes uh, Bob. Bob uh, uh, has recommended um, to George that if you want to do the If Not For You, which they wrote together, um, maybe you should ask Pete Drake to come over. So he comes over. George says, we got uh, Pete Drake's coming over tomorrow. So so we then started doing the more country things, If Not For You. and. And uh, he sets up in front of me. Literally, I could put my foot out and touch his pedals for his pedal steel. And he's facing me and George is right here, right next to me. And um, so in a slow moment, when they used to have to wind the tape back um, uh, or change reels, um, Pete says to me, you want to hear something? I said, absolutely. And so I thought he was just going to play me something. And then he gets out his little black bag and 
little black box, puts it on the end of his pedal steel, puts a tube in his mouth and plugs this into there. And bingo, there it is right in front of me. And he's singing and talking. The pedal steel is singing to me with lyrics and everything. And George, you can actually go on YouTube. There's not video, but there's me and George laughing at how incredible it was. Um, George says something. I'm just laughing in the background. Um, but that was it. So I said, oh, my God, this is like, um, you know, I'm having a special moment here. I said, I've been after this sound for so long since I was like 12, you know, <laughs> listening to Radio Luxembourg. And I said, where do I get one? He said, well, I made this one myself. I said, oh. So then in comes this, uh, Joe Walsh borrowed that Pete Drake, the one that was I saw, that one, yeah. borrowed yeah. that from Pete Drake's wife and did used it on Rocky Mountain Way. And so he then said to uh, Bob Heil Sound, who was our PA guy at the time for most of us who played live, um, he said to, to Bob Heil, hey, Bob, this dog box is really good, but it's not loud enough. <laughs> so he goes, okay, uh, okay, Joe, let me see what I can do. Bingo. He comes up with the Heil talk box. And then um, Bob gave me one for Christmas. Oh, wow. <laughs> and so it was, it was the best Christmas I'd had since I was 12. <laughs> and, um, and then I, I, uh, I rented a rehearsal room for like a couple of weeks and locked myself away in there and learned how to, use the thing and how to talk with it yep. and i've it's a piece of cake now but it's not so easy when you start so but it is it is pretty easy to do i shouldn't say that <laughs> best christmas present ever i love that um and then just moving on to to now you mentioned there's lots of things coming out i know you've been on tour with your never say uh, never tour and you've got more dates yes. across the U the us in uh, november as well so tell us about tell us about the tour you've just done how did it go and tell us about these new dates coming up um, it was probably the best tour I've ever done. I know it sounds so strange. We all sit down because I have to sit because I could stand, but knowing me, I'd wobble and fall over during a solo or something. <laughs> so, so I sit down and I sat in with BB King before we lost him. He was on, he supported me, which I can't believe I'm saying that on, on one of our tours before we lost him. And so I would go out at the end of every show and he was sitting at the time. So I sat down with him. And so that's where I got the idea from. And, but the band stood up, you know, but I said, when we, when we decided to do this, this summer tour, which was three, two week periods, basically, mm -hmm. um, I said to the band, I think we should all sit down. And I think it adds um, uh, something. It makes you feel like the audience feel like they're in the living room with you. It's very interesting. But because everyone knows there's a reason for me having to sit down, they're also there knowing full well that things are getting more difficult for me. And I have to say, that I've never felt that kind of um, appreciation and oh. I'll say it, love 
coming from the audience as I did on this tour. It was, we played two and a half hours every night and did everything anybody wanted us to do kind of thing. And um, uh, every night we would come off and I would, at the the very end of the show, the band would leave and, and I would go up to the mic and stand and pull the mic up and I would just, thank the audience in no uncertain terms you know it was um it, it was pretty incredible i have to say and uh i can't thank everybody enough who came to those shows and i'm really looking forward to uh to november too we've got eight more shows and i have to because of uh, it's a catch 22 for me because we have our life clock we all have that yeah. but i have a progressive clock as well unfortunately so it is a perfect catch 22. So the longer it goes, the less chance there is obviously that my hands are going to be okay. So, but right now I'm adapting, they are affected, but I'm really enjoying playing. (laughs) That's the main thing. And while you still can do it, it, it's best to do it as well. The more I do it, the better the hands stay in shape, you know? Yeah. Absolutely. And you talked about releases as well, the Royal Albert Hall and things like that. What's what's happening on those fronts? Um, the Yes, the Royal Albert Hall um, concert is now, uh, uh, well, uh, highlights of it are on uh, DVD and, or Blu-ray, whatever it is. Um, I've lost, <laughs> I've lost control VHS. of what's yeah. out there. <laughs> and, and it's now a CD as well. So it is, it is just coming out right now. Thank you so much for your, for your time today. And uh, I wish you best of luck for the tour and, and hope you stay well. Thank you so much. Onwards and upwards. Bye for now. There you go. The brilliant Peter Frampton there. If you can, and if he's playing near you, get out and support him. Go see him live while you still have the chance. So many of our heroes are sadly leaving us. So make sure you get out and watch these legends while you still can. You will not regret it. Make sure to follow Peter on the socials. Check out what he's up to. And as I said, buy the records, go to the shows, not just Peter, but all bands as well. Support them before we lose them. You will not regret it. Anyway, that's it for me and this week's show. Thanks again for listening to this one or maybe the previous hundred odd that I've done and even more when I was doing the daily episodes make sure you subscribe on your podcast app so that you get all the episodes come out every single Monday loads more great guests and brilliant stories to come your way over the next few weeks I've been busy interviewing so they are stacking up now I can't wait for you to listen to them I can't get them out fast enough I really can't give us a like follow subscribe on these social media channels all the usuals you know Facebook Twitter X whatever it's called and a big thanks to everybody who interacts each and every week thank you so much So, until next week then, take care. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett. 
Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 